We're excited that you're here and glad that you come to, uh, to celebrate with us. And, uh, and so as we discuss this conversation about hope, the question of hope, um, it's interesting because hope kind of implies that there might be a reason to not hope. It's kind of an odd concept, this idea of hope, that you would, you don't, you don't think in terms of, I have, I have hope for a better future when things are going super well. You just don't, we just don't think in those terms. And so there's, there's got to be some reason to feel the need to hope before we sometimes recognize that we have hope. And so as we discuss the conversation of hope and as we're getting to the end of the book of John, and really today what's, what's wild is the book of John has a conclusion statement, and we're going to discuss it today. And then it has one more chapter, which we're going to get into in the next few weeks. And, and I, I absolutely love John chapter 21 that we'll be breaking through into next week, just referencing this morning. But um, it's really one of the most encouraging uh, accounts anywhere in Scripture for me. And so um, as, we, as we get ready to dive into that, but we wrap up this conclusion statements that John has. And one of the things you need to know about the book of John and about the author John is that when you ask yourself, but does John understand how hard this can be? Like, does John understand how hard belief can be, how hard faith can be, even with the preponderance of evidence, how hard it can be? Does John know how how big a thing he's asking us to believe, how outrageous a thing he's asking us to believe, and how hard these things can be to believe, he does. In fact, he wrote a book about it. That's what this book is. When you see in John 20, 30, and 31, which is our focus this morning, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So this is not merely a biography, even to the degree that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not merely biographies, but are very much so biographies. Um, John is making the statement here, I'm not just telling a story about a person. I'm not just giving you an account of a person's life and death. Which, by the way, we've talked about a couple of times how a good biography ends with what? The death of the main character right? So that's part of what makes John and Matthew and Mark not very good biographies, right? And Luke is that they don't end with the person, the main character's death. Um, but that's, a, that's good news. This is a theological and apologetic biography. John has given us the stories and the accounts and this incidents that he has for a reason. The word apologetic, not meaning to apologize, but the Greek idea of to give a defense, to explain the reason for. So John has a reason for every account that he shared so that we've gotten through in 20 chapters. Here's why I told you what I told you. Here's why I picked the ones I did. I picked the accounts. I picked the stories. I picked the incidences. I even picked the signs to give you for a reason. This is a story of hope. The account of John is fundamentally an account of hope, saying there's, there's reason to believe. There's reason to be, the definition of hope, optimistic about the future. There's reason to interpret the future positively. And, and John, at just like today, knew that his audience needed it. They needed it then, and we need it now. I don't know if in his wildest dreams John could have imagined that 2,000 years later we would still be talking about his book. And discussing his book. I really don't. Maybe if anyone did, John probably did. But, but, if, but, but is that likely? I don't know. But he did know the people of his, of his era and the people who would read it for the next generations. 
He wrote this to give them hope, that they could be optimistic about the future. There were things to look to. And in fact, I really want to encourage you. So tonight, we've got the family Christmas party. Next Sunday night, um, we have a really cool opportunity. So do any of you remember about two years ago, a young lady came and quoted the entire book of John for us? Anybody remember that? Did anybody come? Anybody here for that? Okay. She's coming back next Sunday, next Sunday night, okay, at 6 o'clock. And so she's going to come, and she's going to get up on stage, and she's got some props and things like that, and she's going to cite um, from memory the entire book of John. Um, it's not, she's not going to just stand here and recite it, although there's moments of that. She's got stuff on the stage that she engages with and that kind of stuff. I really want to encourage, so those, again, who was here last time? Is this something people should come to? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different type. It's, uh, we, we had her come, we were like, this will be fun. I mean, this will be cool to see this, like kind of a, you know, cool human tricks type of thing. And like, <laughs> she's going to do the whole book. This is amazing. By the time she was done, I felt like something had changed in my life. Engaging with the book of John solidly for about an hour and a half to two hours. It's, it takes a while. It's an investment. Um, but let me really encourage, there's no charge for that. Next Sunday night um, at 6 is when she'll start. I won't say 6 till when because it'll be 6 until we get done with John chapter 21 um, when she gets done. So I really want to encourage you. You get to start, though, the book of John not believing. In fact, John is assuming you're starting the book of John not believing. He's not intimidated by that. He's not afraid of that. That's just how this works. You may be just like Thomas was. We talked about, Jeff Lay talked about Thomas and really introduced to us Thomas in cool new ways. Um, go back. If you didn't hear that, go back and listen to that online. But there's this fundamental statement that Thomas makes that's so shocking. When he says, unless I experience exactly what I want to experience, I will never believe. And Jeff pointed out the language here is very emphatic. By no means will I believe. Under no condition except this will I believe. You know what? If it's where you are, then the book of John is for you. That's exactly the audience for the book of John, that you would go, no, I don't believe this. Okay. John wrote a book for you 2,000 years ago. I'm going to go through and explain some of the, the ways this book plays out. You can start this, the John this way. If you're paying attention, if you're open at all, you can get to the point of belief via the book of John. Just that. There are decisions to be made all through the book. Now, decisions are really a risk-taking analysis. And I've been known to play some Texas Hold'ems, play some poker, and I enjoy that. And, and here's the thing. A lot of people, when we teach through risk-taking behavior, people don't realize there's two aspects to risk-taking behavior, like with playing poker, that you would say, there are the odds. And the odds are an important part of it. Okay, if, I, if I've got the winning hand minus one card, about 93% chance I'm going to win this. All things being equal, about 93% chance. That's a good odds. And odds are important when it comes to making a decision. But the other part of the decision are the stakes. Okay, that's the other half of the risk-taking decision. What are the odds and what are the stakes? And we're going to talk about this as we go through John. As we go through this kind of summary of the end of the book of John, even though it's not actually the end. Is this idea... What are the stakes and what are the odds? And John is going to spend, he has just spent 20 chapters explaining to you, the odds are in the favor of faith. The odds are in the favor of belief. That's, that's where the odds lie. And throughout, he's also woven a story of what are the stakes? What's at stake here? So we're going to discuss that as we go through as well, and we'll come back to it. 
what do they tell us? What are these signs? He mentions these signs. What do they tell us? Signs obviously are meant to be an indicator of something. And these are signs of what John is saying, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that when you believe in him, when you faith in him, remember there's that action verb is faith. And we don't have that in English, so we say believe, but in the Greek, if you faith in him, you can faith in him. This sign, the first signs. The first sign Jesus did in the book of John is the water to wine. That's an incredible account. Among his, among his, his miracles, signs, it's an easy one for us to go like, I mean, that's cool and all, but I mean, kind of small, a little dinky compared to some of his other ones. But when you stop and consider the power being expressed in this, right? I mean, anybody else do this? Anybody? You guys? You turned something into something else? Done that recently? Not like this, right? No, this is, this is incredible. Like it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a crazy thought that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus just decides that water is now wine. So it is. But it also reveals something about his character, the generous, giving, um, the, the one who's willing to, to do good things for people. When he's not even obligated to do it, there's no obligation here. Jesus is not under any obligation to turn water into wine, but he does for this family. Why? Well, he's that kind of guy. He's just that kind of person. You can learn about the character of this person, and by doing so, the character of Almighty God through this action. God does stuff like this. He rescues some couple, some family at their wedding. Well, that was nice of him, wasn't it? I mean, it was also omnipotent of him, but yeah, it was also really nice. So it's, it's just this wildest idea. He heals an official son. He heals at Bethesda, at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds the 5,000, or as we learned from uh, Dr. Livesay, probably more like 20,000. Walking on water, healing a man born blind. And if you remember in the Jewish mindset, it's, it's a big deal to heal someone who's sick, but to heal someone who's born sick, that just doesn't happen. And as if healing someone born sick isn't enough, the next thing he does is raise a blind man. So it's cool to heal someone who's sick. It's even cooler to heal someone who's born sick. But raising the dead? I mean, that's, that just isn't done. There happens to be, by the way, a lot of these come in sevens in the book of John, a very Jewish way of thinking. Um, these men experience these. This is important to remember. These 12 men, the 11 now, who we get to, they, they experienced these. This isn't, they didn't read about it. This is, not, this is not a second-hand or a third-hand witness account for them. They were there. They gathered up baskets of bread and fish. For them, this was very tangible. It was experiential. For us, this is all taking into second-hand eyewitness account. First-hand eyewitnesses writing, and now we're reading it. We're the second-hand at best witness. When we read this, for us, there's a step they didn't require. They were there. And there should be certain things in their lives that indicate that. If you experience something and you declare that it's true, your life should be, should be changed by that if it's something special like this. And theirs was. He has the I am statements that we find in the book of John. As Jesus is declaring himself God, and John is picking up on this, and that's why he, he makes it so clear in chapter 1, but we have, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. There's seven stated that way. Then there's three others, even though they're not stated in exactly this way, like, 
like the fact that he is the living water. Um, and of course, the, maybe the most powerful one that isn't stated in exactly that way is before Abraham was, I am. This is significant. In English, we would say, I am God, if we make that claim. In Hebrew, you would say, before Abraham was, I am. That's a more clear way of declaring to a Jewish audience, no, no, I'm not just claiming to be God. I'm not claiming to be a God. I'm not like Caesar. I'm not some divine character. No, no, before Abraham was, I am. Which God are you? I am the God. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am the creator of heaven and earth. I am the great I am. It, it would be confusing to, to a Jewish audience for him to just go, yeah, I'm one of those God things like you see all around with statues. And no, no, this is different. And Jesus is making that abundantly clear. And then, of course, with the arresting troops, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, I am, so they all fall down. Um, in one of those great comic moments uh, of the book of John, they all fall down. They, they, here's the thing. These men, they heard him make this claim. These women, they heard this. They heard these words come out of his mouth. This isn't, this isn't an interpretation for them. They aren't, they aren't going, huh, I wonder, I wonder if when Jesus was doing this. No, no, he, they heard him. In fact, there's a whole argument that's made about the book of John that the book of John is written as a legal document. That it's written as though you have an attorney who's making a claim, and we just now here in chapter 20, we get the claim. This is the claim I've been making, and I've been calling witnesses one after the other after the other after the other. I've been calling these witnesses to come before you and declare. And all of these people, these firsthand, we have John the Baptist. John the Baptist is actually, if you go back in John chapter 1 and 2, you see that John the Baptist is referred to as a witness numerous times. In fact, a lot of these people are called witnesses. The word for witness is at least, is in the book of John, at least 26 times. This was a big deal to him. This was a series of witnesses. You have Nathaniel. Remember him? He was the cynic. Yeah, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this, this is the smart aleck who Jesus calls. The Samaritan woman, a totally isolated outcast. I think, by the way, most of us can identify with at least one of these. The feeling of being unloved and unwanted. Jesus at one point references the Hebrew Scriptures as being a testimony for him. The prophets are testifying for him. They are witnesses. Of course, you have Simon Peter, a busy businessman trying to keep his things afloat. He's a witness. Jesus declares himself to be a witness, although he does also admit, if I'm, my only, if I'm the only witness, that wouldn't account for anything. But I am a witness to who I am. So at least he claims it. That is important. We don't want to be claiming things about him. About two-thirds of all Buddhists claim that Buddha is God, when Buddha was absolutely clear with what little writings we do have for him, that he was not. That's a problem to declare someone who is God who declared that they weren't. You, don't, that's, you want Jesus who also is declaring it. God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He references the fact that they testify to him. Then you have Mary and Martha. The sisters living in this time period. These women who are sharing what they believe about him. They're random Jews who report on Lazarus about who he is. You have Mary Magdalene who we got to know very well a few weeks ago. Pontius Pilate. A radical but rational unbeliever. But who is at least convinced of certain things about Jesus. We don't know to what degree. You have Thomas the skeptic, we'll come back to him again, and John, the one whom Jesus loved, who wrote this book. These are all people connected to the concept of witness within these few chapters. Which one is us? Maybe we identify with one or the other of them and realizing John is saying, if they can believe, you can believe. If they can faith, you can faith. You can have hope that they have. 
In fact, in John chapter 1, if we were to go all the way back, we're we're just going to reference it here, but you get to John 20. In John chapter 1, John uses at least 10 different words to define or proclaim who Jesus is. Um, In John chapter 1, he is the Word, he is God, he is light, he is the Son, he is the Lamb of God, he is the Son of God, he is a rabbi, he is the Messiah, he is the King of Israel, and he is the Son of Man. These are all titles given to Jesus in John chapter 1. So you recognize John chapter 1 is John saying, this is who I'm about to be writing about. This is him. This is my thesis statement, right? It's my opening argument. This is who we're talking about. Now I'm going to call witness after witness after witness after witness so that you can faith that what I told you in chapter 1 is the truth about who he is. And then in John 20 and verse 30 here, he's saying, okay, I did it. You have plenty to believe. Plenty. You have overwhelming evidence based on first-hand witness accounts. Can you, I mean, this is, this is a pretty, what's wild is from, if it wasn't for the claims made, if it wasn't for the stakes, which are huge, this would not be hard to believe. This would not be something we would have to challenge with because the evidence is, the preponderance of evidence is so strongly on the side of faith that what is claimed about him is there. Now, the hard part is we're being asked to believe something really big. We're being asked to believe something really huge and really significant. That makes this, that's, otherwise this would, none of us would doubt. If this was, you know, Jesus was a Jew, we'd go like, well, I mean, sure, why not? The evidence, yeah, that's pretty clear. This, there was a person named Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, yeah, I mean, man, lots of eyewitnesses say that. We'll go with that. He was an important historical and religious figure. Okay, yeah, I mean, I can see how that's the case in this. He was, he was God the Son of God, the Son of Man, the divine King of all times. And through Him, and only Him, you can have a resurrected life forever. Oh. See, that's a major claim. Now you see why John had to write a book, and not just a sentence or two. He had to do all of this to make this claim so that you could say, okay, this is despite the stakes, or maybe, as we get here in a second, because of the stakes... I can believe. Years later, John had been convinced that these titles applied to Jesus, so he wrote them down and made this. Now, in each section, in each story, in each account, there are decisions to be made, and there are these huge themes. Here's some of my favorite themes. There's lots. I'm picking three of my favorite themes. One is the theme of sight. If you go through the book of John, you you will see this theme of sight versus blindness. In fact, it's almost a comedy routine in places where there, if you come on next Sunday night and you listen, you will hear these things being played out and how it's almost funny how there, there are whole chapters where the only people who know what's going on is Jesus and blind people. Everybody else is lost and confused. No one can find their way. No one can see what's going on. They are completely confused. They're completely blind except for Jesus and blind people. Like everybody else is lost and confused. He heals them on the Sabbath. Um, there's the blind man who is a, plays a major part in the midst of the story. Um, then you have this, this theme, which is connected, obviously, of light. Now, one of the things that, that fascinates me about Scripture studying it is how it hasn't grown outdated. Um, I read through something, and I'm like, gosh, that's a major theme. But it's a major theme now. Like, it's still a major theme. This, this, the truth still, still here, here still applies. It still fits you read through James or Ephesians or, or any of these books, you're like, wow, these are still the things we deal with now. 
It's like they wrote it last week and just wrote it to us. Has anyone in the last, I don't know, few weeks or months thought, man, this world is blind and lost. Man, there's just a lot of darkness out there. How can people be so blind? How can they not see? Anyone had those thoughts in the last few weeks and months? Like, how has the world gotten so messed up? I feel like many of us have. Those of you who haven't, you're either not on social media or you're not watching the news or something. It's like, it's everywhere. And you go, this is, this is just crazy. And yet, one of the themes of John is this. Can you be honest enough with yourself to say, I'm blind. I need sight. Or are you one of the ones who goes, no, no, I see just fine. As you bump into one thing after another, fall down one set of stairs after another in life. No, no, I'm doing just fine. Versus, can you accept that we, some of us, we, we live in darkness. All of us did. Can we be aware of the darkness that we walk in? So I'm reading, uh, I read out loud to Ginger most nights, and we just, we're reading through Chris Sherrod recommended, we read um, King Solomon's Minds, which is, is kind of one of those weird books from that era when there's, there's a lot of the weird, like, bias and bigotry and, and just odd, <laughs> you just read through stuff going, Man, how people thought just a, just a hundred years ago that's so different now. Um, but but it's fascinating to read a, a, you know this account. If you ever seen the movies, they're terrible. That's why I never read the books and so or this book. But it's it's been interesting. Um, last last night as we we're reading through it, there's an account of the the main characters wandering through a mine, King Solomon's mines, and they're wandering through a mine, and it's now been about a day, and they're out of food and they're out of water. And, and their last, they've used their last match like 24 hours before. And so underground, pitch darkness, no light at all, no water, no food, no nothing. I'm, I'm giving something away here, so I hope you're not. Anyway, spoiler alert. And here they, suddenly, in the midst of the darkness, they see one of them stops the other two and says, is that light? And the line in the book, the guy who's the, the perspective of the, of the author says... It's a light that only someone who had been in darkness for the last 24 hours could have seen. It was so dim a light that only someone being in the darkness for 24 hours could have seen this light. Now, here's what strikes me today about this theme of light. Is that we're watching, we are watching other churches, church after church, go and pinch out the light of hope because it's uncomfortably bright to some people. That they're saying, this is, we say, this is the truth, and it's the truth we've stood by for 3,000 years. Pick them. There's dozens of them. And systematically, over the last couple hundred years, people have said, that's, that's a little bit too bright. You need to turn that off. Now, I will tell you, sometimes they've been right. It's a light that needed to be turned off that we were just, we'd set a fire that Jesus had not set. But, but often, they come along and say, you need to turn that. It's your church. Is, it's bright to be in your church. You need to turn that off. There's too much light. And this is exactly why we can't fall into that trap. Because in a dark world, if you can't find light in the church, where are you going to find it? When, when this emptiness, when the awareness, when people suddenly wake up to the fact at the individual level, or maybe in mass droves we can pray, wake up to the fact that they are walking around in the darkness, and they go, how do I find a way out of this darkness? And they look around, and all the churches have said, no, no, we know this light's uncomfortable to you, so we shut it off. Well, there's nowhere to go. The church is just as dark as everything else, so why would they bother? It's vitally important that we stand by this concept of Jesus as the light. And yes, the light can be hard on us sometimes. The light can feel like it's blinding us at times. 
We all can identify with that. He announces himself at the Feast of Tabernacles, filled with light. He announces himself at the Feast of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. Jesus is declaring himself over and over again to be light. And then finally, the other one I want to jump onto is the idea of life. We got to hear um, John this morning as he was being baptized quote John 3.16, talking about the life that he has come to give us. That he has come to give us life. This is that we are born again. That's a life reference. That we have living water. That there's feeding uh, of bread. That he is the bread of life. These are all references to life and the life that he comes to give us. The raising of Lazarus at the expense of his own life. The resurrection of Jesus and his appearances. And not just life as in a heart beating and lungs breathing. Life. Real life. We'll talk more about that. This changes everything. What does Jesus coming back to life mean? One of the things that it means is that we get to live. That we get something different. There's a life that we get. John 14, back a few chapters. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, he's telling the disciples. Because I live, you also will live. He's not talking about, again, that they're just walking around as animated you know, sacks of biochemicals. He means life, an abundant, resurrected life. Because I will live again, you will live. 1 Corinthians 15 makes this even more clear. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and in Christ all shall be made alive. There's a resurrection that is our hope. But it's not just this hey, you know, pie in the sky, by and by type of thinking, like, hey, someday I'll get to start this life. The idea is that the resurrected life begins now. We're living the resurrected life. That's the idea that it's not just life that we'll someday get to have. Now, there's a hope that's only in the resurrection, and we'll talk about that. But that we get to live out this resurrection. It's why we get to do the things we do. It's why we get to risk there's a sense in which once you put your faith in Christ, the things that matter most could never be taken from you anyway. So you can risk all the rest of it. All the rest of it is expendable because there's a, you get to live a risky Christian life because everything else is expendable that you can have taken from you. So why did John choose these books? Well, he says, I've written these so that you may believe faith, so that you may faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by faithing you may have life in his name. That Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that by faithing in him you may have life in his name. This main thing that we just talked about, where there is life, there is hope. This is, the, this is the, the picture that's been created. So you can die and go to heaven someday? Okay, maybe. So that you be resurrected in the eternal life at the resurrection? Certainly. To have a purpose-filled, abundant, resurrected life now? Yes. That's the idea. We have been resurrected with him. Our spirits were dead and brought to life. And that this, this revivication within inside of us, we are now alive in a new way. In fact, without that, we are the consumer going around life going, how do I prop myself up with something new? How do I find a way to please myself right now? How do I numb the pain that I feel? How do I? And that's what you turn into is, is this consumer, consumer. How do I find? And we're consuming all these little uh, things that are supposed to help us, many of which are just toxic and death themselves. But instead, as Christians, as the resurrected life, we are now springs of living water. We now bring life into a situation. 
It's why our marriages can rock. Because we have, if you have two Christians together, they're bringing life together into their marriage. They're, they're a source of life for one another and for their family and for their neighborhood and for the people they run into in the grocery store. And the people they're wrestling for a TV, wrestling a TV, you know, like that. That's good Black Friday reference. No, no money. <laughs> None of you win either. You're all like Amazon, baby. I don't, I don't go into those crazy places. The, the, um, this is a, this, this idea of living out this life that wherever we go, there's a spring of living water that we're taking with us. That's, that's the idea of the resurrected life. It's something very, very different from that. John wrote this persuasive paper in the form of a book. He wants you to be spiritually full, spiritually overflowing, making a difference for forever. I don't know if you thought about it this way. I hadn't until I was doing this study realizing that 2,000 years ago there was a guy named John, and John wants you to believe. Now, he may not have been thinking of you particularly. Again, how, to, how much imagination did the man have? I don't know. But if you're someone who's coming to the book of John and you don't believe, John is saying, I wrote this for you. If you're doubting, if you struggle, John's going, hey, good news, I wrote a book for you. I wrote a book for you to be able to dig into and study and learn about because I want you to have a resurrected life, a life in Christ Jesus, a life defined by your relationship with him. I don't have all the answers. I didn't even put in all the stories, much less all the answers. But I gave you enough that you can faith. You can believe this stuff. It makes sense. We've talked about before, I was raised in a church that really applauded the idea of ignorant faith. They're like, no, no, if you know it, then you can't have faith in it. I was so relieved to discover later that that's a huge lie. Now, it's an error. They didn't mean to be lying. It's a lie that they had bought into. I mean, can you imagine? John wrote a whole book meant to convince you of something. Clearly, this is meant to be a rational faith. Otherwise, why write a book? This book is, and he calls witnesses, and he makes claims, and then he defends those claims. You're allowed to go, wow, that's really tough. That's a lot to believe. I wish someone had written a book to convince me of it so that I could have enough evidence that I could dig into and do the research and figure it out. You've probably learned a lot. If you've been coming to these studies of John, you've probably learned a lot about God you didn't know before. He was revealed enough. We aren't just some victim of bad ideas. Um, it's something I heard this week in a podcast, that Christians are just victims of bad ideas. No, we're not. We've been given a rational argument. And the, and the evidence falls heavily on the side of faith, even in the midst of the claims. Um, William Lane Craig, who's one of my favorite writers, who's impacted now hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians and non-Christians with his debates and materials and stuff that he writes. He's a great, um, rational Christian in regards to his material. What's wild is when he asks his testimony, though, the first step towards salvation wasn't um, some logical, apologetic argument. The first step for him was sitting next to a girl in college who was filled with joy all the time. And so being sarcastic with her one day at college, he's like, why are you happy? Why are you happy all the time? Because he was just being a jerk. And she said, oh, Bill, it's just because of Jesus Christ. And so he was like, okay, maybe I, because he was like, he'd been raised to hear all this stuff. He knew this stuff. He knew the arguments. So, well, maybe I need to do a little research on this Jesus Christ character. So he picks up the Bible and starts reading through the Gospels. And to quote him, I was captured by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Have we really looked at him and studied him? 
No one does this stuff. This has been one of our themes of the book of John. Who does this? Answer, nobody. In fact, here's what's wild. Jesus claimed to be God. I just want you to think for a second of all the people in history you can think of who claim to be God. So just, just think back on all the cult leaders, all the Caesars and emperors and kings. Were they sacrificial? Loving? Serving? Going out of their way? Is that the kind of people they were? No. When humans claim to be God, they become bigger jerks, not less. They become worse. Almost without, I can't think of a single other example of someone who claimed to be God who's not even worse to try to live with. I mean, it seems like almost all of them are like that. Here we have a man who claims to be God who's nothing like that. Who then, is, when he is revealed as God, is just as patient and generous. I mean, he hangs around for Mary Magdalene. He comforts his mother and his youngest disciple while he's hanging on a cross. He's got this limited period of time before he's going to be facing the cosmic battle of all of history, so he's having dinner with his friends, and he's washing their feet. Who does this? Answer, nobody does this. We don't do this, and we should be so humbled that we'd be quick to be like, yes, however I can, please, give me an opportunity to humble myself. We don't do that, and yet here he is, something so radically different about him that he comes and he makes his proclamation, and it, as Jeff said last week, like Thomas misses church once, right? Like that's one of the some of the that's not a good application of this, by the way. It's like don't ever miss church. Jesus might show up. I mean, hopefully he's here all the time, right? And so, um, but he he miss Jesus. Jesus shows in person. So what does Jesus do? He comes back for Thomas. Who does that? When we get into twenty one, you're going to see you're you're going to watch me struggle through chapter twenty one, a section of twenty one, as I wrestle with my emotions over who is this guy. I mean, who, who does this stuff? This guy who's been revealed to us through this book, it's really wild. He says, listen, I don't know you. John's been dead 2,000 years. But he wanted you to believe. And he wanted me to believe. And we've been teaching through this partially because I want you to believe. I want you to hear this and, and see the truth in this. I want you to have hope. And not just any hope. The resurrected hope. He dragged us all to the cross. Okay, so Thomas's case. He owed, Jesus owed Thomas nothing. Thomas drew a line in the sand out of his own stubbornness, his own skepticism. Now, again, I'm not chastising or judging him, right? That would be foolish. I'm right there with him. But that's what, that's what Thomas did. He didn't need to. Thomas had plenty of evidence. Plenty. He had an empty tomb. He had 10 men and a number of women who he knew well, and he knew them not to be delusional or crazy or liars. And he knew this about them, and they told him, and for eight days, Thomas wouldn't believe. Can you imagine the, the steadfast, pig-thick, headed stubbornness of someone who spends eight days with all these people and going like, Thomas, we saw him. He was here. And Thomas was like, nope. Mm -mm, I don't buy it. Whatever y'all say, right? He's not buying a minute of this. I've got to imagine they tried to convince him for eight days and nothing's happening. He's not getting it. It's a, it's, he's a skeptic. And, and again, I get that. Ginger and I have laughed over the years. There are people who have recommended, you know, if you recommend a, a movie to me, I'm, I'm really hard on movies. Some of you know me well. I'm really hard on movies. And so people will recommend a movie to me and they'll recommend it. And, and I'll go see it. And once I realize that they're not very discerning about movies, 
Then when they come after that and they're like, hey, you got to go see this movie in my head. Now, I don't say this out loud because I'm not this mean, except in my own head. I'll be like, that's cute that you like this movie. Like that's, <laughs> like you know, right? Okay, that's arrogant. I know it. But it's still, it's still, I, I get that. They're going like, hey, hey, no, no, we're telling you. Jesus came like, yeah, whatever. That's so cute that y'all think that. John, Thomas isn't buying it. And then he has plenty of reason to buy it, and yet he doesn't. Something about Thomas. He remembered, maybe he remembered Jesus telling them in Matthew 24, don't believe when people tell you I'm back. Maybe he, maybe he was fixated on that. I don't know, but he had every reason to. So what did Jesus do? He came back. What? Why? Why would he possibly do that? Did he owe Thomas anything? Nothing. And yet, out of his gentleness and his love, he comes back for Thomas. Who does stuff like that? Not people who are humans who claim to be God. They don't do stuff like that. They don't bend for anybody. They don't, they don't sacrifice for anybody. What does this resurrection prove? Well, one thing it proves is that we can live again. It also, by the way, proves that God the Father approved of the work of God the Son. We know that through several passages. One of them is here in Romans 1. Concerning his Son who descended from David according to the flesh... And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection. His resurrection declared some things about Him. Him being raised from the dead was God's way of saying, My Son in all power. Because that's what that means. He resurrected from the dead. It was His choice. He told us in John 10, No one takes my life. I lay it down and I take it up. That's a neat trick. If you're going to go back and listen to that, that's a, that's a fascinating conversation that's going, yeah, a lot of people lay their lives down. That's, that's amazing when people do that. But then to take it up again, yeah, not many people pull that one. This gives us the ultimate expression of hope. Hope in a resurrection. I, I want to close on this thought. Um, a few years ago when my grandfather died, um, it's, it's always tough um, when someone who we love, who's close to us, who we care about dies. It's always tough. And the holidays bring it back to us, obviously. And so we, we wrestle through that. We have ministries set up just to help us engage with one another in that conversation. Um, uh, one, of our, one of our own uh, members died this week, and, and I'm doing the funeral tomorrow. I've never found, after 20-something years of therapy and 20-something years of being a, a minister, I've never found some magical right words to say. Typically, shutting your mouth is the best answer. Being present for somebody, listening to them, letting them know you're there. And it's okay to say, I don't know what to say. But so the, uh, when we try to be clever, usually it's about trying to comfort ourselves, not them. So when, when my grandfather died, who was very special to me, Pine Cove uh, made this, they got this massive card. I was on Pine Cove staff then. They got a massive card and everybody wrote on there. It was all very sweet. Um, but... One person wrote something on there that I, I still consider to be the best thing I've ever heard that you can tell a believer about a believer who's died. Um, a guy named Rod, who's very wise in the, in the maintenance department, wrote, our hope was never in this life. It was always in the resurrection. That is our hope. Now, we have hope here that's in cool ways, but that's the resurrected life hope. It's not waiting for the resurrection to have hope. We have hope now because of the resurrection, and we live in hope now if we are going to be resurrected from the dead. 
to life. So I want you to believe. Um, again, we've, we've ended John, although we have one more chapter, John tags on the end, which is fascinating. But, but so here we have this account. There has been enough here to reveal who Jesus Christ is and how much he loves you and how he has come and lived a life to choose you. And so I want you to believe. John wants you to believe. I believe through Scripture we know that God wants you to believe. So if there's anyone who hasn't ever met this Jesus or doesn't know this Jesus, I hope this morning will be the day when you make that decision. That you feel that wrestling match, the tug of of the Spirit pulling you out of those chairs, no matter if you have to walk on nine people's knees. None of them will be upset about it if this is why you're coming. So whatever that is, if if you feel that tug, I hope you will come up and let us pray with you. Put your faith in this Jesus. Um, if not, come back over the next few weeks and hear even more about the kind of person we're talking about. It's pretty amazing stuff. So I want to pray. Um, go ahead and stand with me, if you will. I want to pray, and then if if you've already put your, uh, if you already had the conversation um, with our welcome home team and Lance and whoever else, and you know you're ready to join today during our invitation here in a second, that'll be the time for that. Um, if you want to come and pray about anything at all, you can come up here and, and pray with one of us, um, especially if you want to find this hope in the resurrection um, of which Christ was the firstborn. Father, we're so grateful for the goodness of your Son, and we're so thankful that we get to come here and enjoy one another and the good things of life, to come together and gather with our friends and make new ones, to worship together and to learn together and to engage in your Scripture through the power of your Spirit together. Father, there are probably people in here um, who are pretty hardened. They may seem to be believers or they may not, but are probably pretty hardened to some of this stuff, and I get it. And John got it. So I I thank you um, that you have been aware of the challenges we face and that you love us enough to care about that. And I pray you'll guide us through the power of your Spirit again to trust you. We don't know all of it, but what we do know leads us to trust you for what we know. And we thank you and we appreciate who you are and what you're doing for us and what you've done for us here in this incarnation time as we also get to celebrate the resurrection. And this, Lord, we give you thanks and praise. Amen.